We have been in a a year-long series on the book of Jeremiah, uh, the great prophet of the Old Testament. We're taking a break from that today uh, to talk about, have a uh, sort of a special Easter sermon. So it's not going to be quite in the same format or quite as organized as it normally is. So bear with me. So before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And as always, we need it. We need to remember the basics of the gospel, the power of the cross, and the glory of the resurrection. Thank you that your word is pointing forgetful people like us to our Redeemer. We need the redemption he offers. Bring us to the cross. Show us the empty tomb. Bring us your grace. Change our hearts. Change our lives. And have mercy upon us. And help us to remember what difference Christ can make in our lives. And so we pray. Speak through your word this morning. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I wonder if we had the time, which, don't get nervous, we don't. Uh, I understand that. Um, But if we had the time, it would be fun to see how many hands got raised and then let everybody share and talk one by one. Because I think it would be fun to see how many people in an auditorium this size have ever had their lives intersect with history in a way that you are an eyewitness to something that was really memorable, really important in the overall scheme of things. It's never really happened to me Although there were a number of great historical events that I, like millions of other people, watched on television as they happened. The oldest one that I remember uh, is when John F. Kennedy was shot. No, that dates me. Um, I was five years old and watching television on our big old black and white TV that was about twice the size of this pulpit. And I was watching TV, probably cartoons or something like that, and my mom ran into the room and changed the channel, and I remember she was crying. And that's about all I remember. In the 1960s, I remember watching NBC Nightly News throughout the 60s, because that's what my parents watched. And every night, they put a little box up in the right-hand corner with today's body count from Vietnam sort of like a scoreboard. I can vividly remember that. I remember my parents waking me up to watch the astronauts take off and waking me up on another morning to watch them walk on the moon. I remember when Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King were assassinated. In the 70s, I remember the first televised terror attack. It was at the 1972 Olympic Games, and we lived in Holland at the time. And my father and I were supposed to go to the games, and all the transportation to Munich was canceled. And so we were not able to go. I remember when President Nixon resigned. I was a sophomore in high school. I remember the bicentennial year, 1976, my senior year in high school. The president came to Concord, Massachusetts that day, about 15 miles from where I lived, but it was way too crowded, so a buddy and I went to see an Elton John concert instead. 
In the 80s, I remember running a small lawn care business out of my parents' basement and my dad calling downstairs to let me know that President Reagan had been shot. I remember watching the Berlin Wall come down in November of 89, knowing somehow that this was going to change the world, but not knowing how that was going to happen. In the 90s, I remember being in the Army and waiting to see if I was going to get called up to Grenada or Panama or the Persian Gulf. I didn't. I remember the events surrounding Nelson Mandela, O.J. Simpson, Princess Di, and President Clinton. In the 2000s, I remember 9-11, watching the Twin Towers come down, sitting all day glued to the television, not believing what was happening right before my, our, our, our eyes, all of our eyes. And that began a two, decade, uh, two decades of wars across the globe and the ongoing war on terror. I remember the night we elected our first black president and the massive sociological shift that took place in our country. But I imagine for those who were eyewitnesses to all of those events and so many other events of great significance that have happened in the last 60 years, and even in the last few years, being an eyewitness to a great historical event must be really something. When you're an eyewitness to something of historical proportion, you never forget it. It stays with you the rest of your life. And I bring this up because on that resurrection day some 2,000 years ago, there were some people who were eyewitnesses to one of the greatest miracles in history, and that's the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the scripture says that when Jesus came back to life on that first Easter Sunday, he didn't show himself off in a corner to one or two people. He showed himself to his followers and to people who are not his followers, to skeptics and unbelievers. And he didn't show up just once. He showed up a number of times over several weeks. He had dinner with folks. He did question and answer times. He taught and he walked with people. And everyone who was an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ, they never forgot it. They went out and spread the word. In fact, when the Roman official said, you've got to stop talking about this resurrection stuff, they didn't say it quite like that. It's sort of the Dave modernized version. But they said, we can't. We can't stop talking about it. We saw the resurrected Christ. And once again, when you're an eyewitness to something of historical significance, it's a big deal. You never forget it. Church history tells us that almost all of the disciples died for telling the story of the resurrection of Jesus. People told them to stop, and they wouldn't stop, and they couldn't stop. And they lost their lives. They couldn't lie about what they had seen as eyewitnesses. And today, if I brought up a panel of experts, people who've studied the evidence for the resurrection of Christ, and if we had a couple of hours to really listen to their presentation and for you to ask questions, I think we could dismiss after several hours of careful thinking about this, and virtually every one of you would go out saying the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus Christ really did come back from the dead. We're not going to do that today. I'm going to actually take a little bit different uh, run at things uh, this Easter. 
I'm not going to talk about the evidence for the resurrection. I want to talk about the so what of the resurrection. The so what, because a lot of people that I talk to uh, these days, they find out that I'm a Christian, and then they find out that I'm a pastor, and then I find out that I really you know, believe all this stuff in the Bible, and I believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection. And I get some sort of answer like, you know, good for you. But so what? It doesn't have any bearing or any relevance on my busy life in this very complex world. There's no implications for that event on my life. And I always want to say, oh, really? You think the resurrection of Christ has no relevance or impact or implications for your life? Well, that's not true. The resurrection has huge implications for your life. And so that's what I want to spend some time talking about this morning. You know, I read something recently, and I've come across this probably every few years, and I get reminded of this. It's a simple statement, really, uh, nothing lofty, just sort of matter-of-fact, honest truth. It was written shortly after 9-11 uh, by Peggy Noonan, uh, who's a famous journalist. Her, her name is now Peggy Willison. Um, and she wrote about the bravery of the firemen who rushed into the World Trade Center to save as many people as they could after the attacks of 9-11. And she quoted a friend of hers who talked about everyone who died in the Twin Towers that day. And that person said, everyone died as the person they were. A guy who ran down quicker than everyone and didn't help anyone, that was him. The guy who ran to, to get the old lady and was then hit by debris, that's who he was. They all died who they were. And that made me think, who am I? How will I react? How will I act at the time of my death, especially if it's as unexpected as in the case of the World Trade Center? Will people see Christ in me even as I'm fighting for my own life? Who am I today? And I think those are good questions, not just for me, but for all of us. Who are we really? And that's important because who we truly, truly are will show up at some point, sooner or later, no matter what kind of facade we try to hide behind. And so the questions for today are really, are you the person you want to be? Are you the person you should be? And are you the person you should be in Christ? Now, as followers of Christ, we should be new people with new motives and new attitudes and new actions. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verses 14 to 17 says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The oldest passed away. Behold, the new has come. In light of those verses, if somebody asked you, uh, who are you? What would you say? Would they be able to tell that you're different? that you're a follower of Christ? Do you act differently from the rest of the crowd? Do you, have your, uh, do you love your neighbors? 
I mean, your actual neighbors, but also your family and your coworkers and your roommates and fellow students. And we have a lot of college students back here. Some of those people live down the hall are not easy to love. Amen? Yeah, I see a lot of heads, and I, yeah, I know that guy. Um, but what I really want to focus in on is these questions that, what is at the center of your life? In this area, often referred to as the soul. Because this, more than anything, will answer the question of who are you? What's the defining ideology of your life? Where do you come from? Where are you going? What's your purpose? What's your moral compass? Do you even have one? What's at the center of your life? Those are all big questions. And we need to think about them. Have you come up with answers for them? I mean, we deal with this all the time. Let's say next week you uh, have to go to a party. Maybe it's a professional function. You're not all excited about it, but you got to go. The boss wants everybody there, and you got to meet some people. And they don't know you, and you don't know them. And so you walk into the room, and you introduce yourself to a small group uh, of people. And what's the first question they're going to ask you? Well, they're going to ask some version of what's your name. Do they care about your name? Not really. Are they going to remember your name? Probably not. Are you going to remember their name? No. It's just something we've got to get past because the next question is what people really want to know, and that's, what do you do? They want to know about your profession. They want to know what you do for work. Why are people so interested in what we do for a living? Because in some way, our profession informs other people about something near our center. In other words, most of us choose to go into certain professions because of abilities or interests or passions that we've had. In some cases, abilities, interests, and passions that we've had since we were little kids. And so when we learn what someone does for a living, it tells us something about them. I was in a group one time, and we're introducing ourselves, and everybody's asking what everybody else did. And uh, one guy said, I'm a professional musician, mostly jazz. And I thought, hmm, that tells me something about that guy, probably unemployed a good amount of the time. <laughs> Lives with his mom, never washes his car. You know, artist type. Now, I didn't say any of those things. I'm not even proud of thinking those things, and especially not telling you about any of those things. But you just form certain conclusions and make certain assumptions about other people. I know I've now endeared myself to every artist in the room. Um, another time I met a guy, I asked him what he did for a living, and he said, I'm a commonwealth attorney. I thought to myself, you know, probably a pretty smart guy. You know, wears a suit, pays some other rich guy to do his taxes, organizes his underwear, you know, that type. Gives me a little idea of what that guy's all about. And we all do this more or less. And when we get by the name thing and we want to know what each other does for a living, that gives us information about that person, helps us form a picture of who is this person we're getting to meet. But you get past the professional questions and then you want to know about personal lives. So you ask the family or the relationship question. So you say, you married? Now, if this person is in their 30s or 40s and they're not married, you're going to wonder why and talk about it after you leave. It's a terrible, rotten thing to do. But a lot of people do it. Probably not any of you, but lots of other people out there. 
And if they're married, okay, that passes muster. And then the next thing you're going to say is, do you have any kids? Now, if they're in their 30s and 40s and the answer is no, they don't have any kids, you're going to talk about that afterwards too. And again, it's a rotten thing to do, but a lot of people do it. And again, I'm sure none of you, but other people out there, those people. And if they have two or three kids, you figure, well, that's about normal. But if they have five or more kids, you suspect Catholic or Mormons in there somewhere, right? I mean, let's be honest. And so you talk about relationships a little bit. And then you move beyond work and family. And then you say, what do you do in your spare time? And what do you do for fun? And you find out about recreation and hobbies. And this is interesting. We find out a lot uh, about people by what they do with their free time. We find out who actually has free time. So that's getting rarer and rarer. I mean, I've been asking these questions to people for a long time, and I never find anyone that says, you know, I play croquet or I play bridge. Nobody admits to bowling either, but somehow the bowling alleys are jammed with all those people who don't bowl. But these days, if you ask that question, it's, I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I do mountain climbing or mountain biking or snowboarding and all these adventuresome things. So now you've spent a little time in this social gathering and you found out their profession and their family situation, their friendship situation, what they do with fun. And when someone gathers all this information about you, do they really know you? Really? No. They don't know you. They have some external clues about you, but that's it. They don't have a clue what's really at the center of your life. And here's something that's even a little scarier. A lot of us, we don't know what's at the center of our own lives. I mean, it's one thing if other people don't know uh, that about us, but a lot of us don't know that about us either. And you can meet with folks and you can say, come on, beyond your profession, beyond you being a dad or a mom or a parent or a husband or a wife, beyond the fact that you golf or ski, who are you at your core? What's at the center of your life? I mean, you can go on Amazon, I did, and you can search for books that have the word soul in them, in their title. There's over 100,000 of them and I own 97 of them. But most of them are actually about something else, the soul of the suburbs, the soul of America, the soul of baseball, and on and on. But what about your soul, the center of who you are? What's going on there? And the reality is a lot of people just don't know. Some people spend their whole lifetime and they never know. They never figure this out. A lot of people get partway through life and they get a little disillusioned and they say, you know what? I gotta be more than just a worker. I gotta be more than just a mom or a dad. I gotta be more than a golf bum. There's gotta be something that brings meaning and purpose to life, and golf ain't it. Baseball maybe, but not golf. <laughs> so people get nervous about this, and they move into a midlife crisis, so they'll go out and have an affair, or they'll consume more alcohol than they need to, or they'll experiment with things they've never done before. And psychologists tell us this is driven by this uneasiness of trying to figure out what's at the center of my life right now that they can't seem to get a handle on. Some people go into counseling, and that helps them. It actually helps most people. 
Some people even get desperate enough that they'll go to church. And that sometimes takes a certain level of desperation, I have to admit. But they go to church because they wonder, maybe God can tell me what's supposed to be at the center of my life. And so if they go to a good church, and the Bible is clearly taught at that church, they'll get some important information about what ought to be at the center of their life. Someday a pastor or a teacher is going to open the Bible and say something like this, okay, you're a human being. You want to know who you really are. Well, you're not the result of an accidental explosion of gases out in space five billion years ago. You're not just an evolved ape. You're a creation of an almighty personal God who knows your name, who knows all about your life, and who has given you a soul that he wants you to discover and know about and let be the defining thing in your life. And sooner or later, that pastor or teacher is going to open the Bible again and tell you, so you want to know what's beyond this life? Well, you can know that. All of us are going to go beyond a grave to a life either with God or apart from God forever, partly based on the decisions we make in this life. You want to know what your purpose in life is? Well, good. The Bible speaks to that too. The Bible says the purpose of your life, the reason why you're here, is to come into a relationship with God, to find out what he's calling you uh, to do with your life and then to get about it with his help. And when you're relating to God closely and you find his calling for your life and you're doing it with his support, that's life in all its fullness, which is what Jesus promised. That's really living. Well, there's some people who go to church and they start learning all this information about what's really core to who they are and it helps them. But a lot of people go to church and they learn this information and then come Monday morning, they take whatever they were thinking about at church and they sort of stuff it in a little compartment labeled church. And the alarm goes off and they go into the marketplace on Monday morning and they work just like they've always worked before they started this spiritual investigation. They have the same ethics, the same relationship patterns, sometimes the same kind of corruption in the way they work. They just compartmentalize this church stuff into one area of their life. And then they revert to form in their work life. Or they'll go into marriage and family and whatever they're learning over here is not brought over into that area of their life. They relate to the spouse the same way their parents related to each other. They raise the, their kids the way they were raised. They'll watch Oprah once in a while and get a new idea and see if it's going to work. And that's about it. Keep playing golf, keep playing tennis, nothing changes. And you know what? There's a lot of people whose life looks just like that. They've added church, but they still don't know what's at the center of their life or what's supposed to be there. Now listen to me closely because this is the so what of Easter. This is the big deal. The Bible says that when Jesus burst forth from the tomb, coming back to life after three days, he did so to fulfill the prophecy that he would come back from the grave. He did so to prove that he was indeed God's son, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. But another reason why Jesus came back to life was so that he could live in the center of your life and my life so that he could be the defining thing at the center of who we are. That's big. That's really, really big.
This is the dream of God for every person, that the risen Christ would live at the center of every man, woman, and child. Because when Christ lives at the center of a person's life, everything changes. Easter changes everything. The first thing that changes is that Christ brings his love to rule and reign inside a person's life. And people desperately want that. Everywhere I go these days, I see people trying to be loved. At the end of June, I'll go to General Assembly, go every year. It's like a PCA convention. And it's usually at a giant hotel convention center complex. And since we're not that big as conventions go, there's usually multiple groups, multiple conventions going on at the same time. And sometimes it's fun to see who the other guys are. We were there one time, and there was a mortuary convention, all the funeral homes. You know, they had exhibits of all the latest, coolest caskets. It was kind of like, yeah, I think I'm in the wrong place. Um, so there's always these things going on. And so we're going to go this year at the end of June to Dallas. Uh, so that'll be fun. And we'll get into this giant convention complex, and it's filled with restaurants and lounges and bars and all these other groups are there, all these multiple conventions going on at the same time. And if you go in to one of these restaurants or bars, it's almost comical in a sad sort of way, watching people desperately reach out to each other. Can I belong to you? Would you love me? The Internet sets records almost every month of more people downloading more apps, trying to make more connections with people they can't see, who they have little chance of ever getting to know on a personal basis, but they still reach out through cyberspace saying, look, would you love me? Could we get to know each other? Could I belong to you? We have more ways to connect with each other than at any time in history, and yet loneliness is now a health care crisis. We put enormous pressure on relationships, more pressure than they can bear sometimes, by asking, by implying, by coming out and saying, can you love me with a perfect love? Can I belong to you in some safe, secure kind of way? And beloved, the love you're looking for is found in the ultimate of senses, that sense of belonging that you really uh, need to feel secure. It's only coming your way when Christ is at the center of your life. Then you'll know you're loved with a perfect love, and you'll know that you're secure, and you'll know that you belong because you belong to Jesus. And then if other people don't love you with such a perfect love, you can say, that's okay, because I know it's at the center of my life. I know who does love me with a perfect love. Another thing that happens when Christ is at the center of your life is he brings a strength that you don't have without him. People who don't have Christ at the center of life often don't know what is at the center of life, usually by their own admission. And so sometimes they get engaged in uh, certain self-destructive behavioral patterns, and you project it out five or ten years, and you're going to wreck your life and imperil your eternity. And some of you have that feeling, but I can't change. And you're right. You can't change in your own strength. That's true. But here's another one of the big deals about Easter. Christ takes up residency at the center of your life, brings you a love, a sense of belonging, gives you a strength you don't have on your own. 
Strength to stop doing stuff you haven't been able to stop doing on your own. Strength to walk through new doors that you haven't been able to walk through. Strength to lock certain doors behind you that should have been locked a long time ago. And that strength is available for those who put Christ at the center of their life. What else does it mean to have Christ at the center of your life? Well, there's a promise that even if you sin, disappoint God, you can be forgiven and cleansed. I remember a while ago, quite some time ago now, reading about a general officer who lost his honors in his retirement because he had multiple affairs with some subordinates' wives. And he did a television interview with Connie Chung. She used to be a big newscaster. I think she's still on television. I'm not sure. But she asked him the question, why did you imperil your whole career for these immoral relationships? And he sort of said, you know, I regret having done so. And I will live with the shame and guilt of those indiscretions every hour of every day for the rest of my life. And I remember seeing that and thinking, that is not the plan of God. That is not what God wants for you. If you had Christ at the center of your life, no matter how dreadful those sins were, how serious they were, Christ can forgive you and can lift the shame and guilt out of your life. The human heart was not made to live with crushing shame and guilt, pressing in on it every hour of every day for the rest of your life. You don't have to live like that. Christ can change that if he's at the center of your life. He brings love and belonging and strength and forgiveness. And what about hope? We prayed about that a little while ago. There are so many situations in our world that need hope, that are in desperate need. Think of the refugee crisis of the last three, four years. Watching people pour out of the Middle East, particularly pour out of Syria. Syria is almost empty and pour into Turkey and Jordan and Europe. And I've been following that story. And there is a spot in Jordan that's the size of uh, three football fields that has tens of thousands of people in that place. No sanitation, no shelter, no water, no food. It's a living nightmare, and they've been there for more than two years. Hundreds of thousands of them have braved horrific conditions trying to get to Europe. Thousands have died trying. And we have seen all this before. We saw it in Afghanistan. We saw it in Bosnia. We saw it in the Sudan. We saw it in Kosovo. Different people, same situation. Squalid, jammed, unsanitary refugee camps. And every time people get interviewed there, and so many are just filled with despair. But I saw one interview, and there was one elderly woman that looked different from the rest. She said, I've not lost hope. And the interviewer said, why? And she said, I have God. I have God in my life. It reminded me of a certain prophet whose people were sent into exile, but they still had hope because they still had God. When you have Christ in the center of your life, no matter how dark things get, no matter how despairing you might become because of the circumstances of your life, There is still, in the center of your life, a sense of hope. All this and more comes when Christ is at the center of your life. And as you grow with Christ at the center of your life, an interesting thing happens. He doesn't stay compartmentalized there. He goes with you into the workplace on Monday morning. I was reading an article by Warren Bennis. He's one of the great writers of our day on leadership. And he said, the crisis in the corporate 
uh, in corporations worldwide is that many corporations are led by people who lack integrity. So we have huge companies being run by people who have no moral compass, no sense of social responsibility, no conscience with regard to how they wield power. Now, that shouldn't be a big surprise. There's a corporate scandal in the news virtually every week. Every week, there's some article somewhere about some company paying out millions in bonuses and stock options to their top executives at the same time announcing they're taking a multi-billion dollar write-off. If you have Christ at the center of your life, you bring his sense of love and justice, of ethical integrity to the workplace. It changes how you work. When you have Christ at the center of your life, you bring that into your relational world. I remember this happened a long time ago, but I'll never forget it. I had stopped at this sort of one of those gas station convenience stores uh, one time, and I was inside the store, and this couple screeched into the parking lot, hops out of the car screaming at each other, and she's swearing at him, and he's yelling right back at her. And she rips open the door of the store and yells at the cashier to call the police and then starts screaming at him again. And I didn't intend to overhear their conversation, but their voices were raised so loud you couldn't help it. And they're fighting with each other, and it got to a crescendo pitch, and they're at each other's throats about who is at fault for yet another family breaking up. Well, they wouldn't have to tell the kid because the kid was sitting in the back seat. And the whole time, I'm standing there with my jaw open, holding my RC and a moon pie, and just listening to this screaming, thinking this is not right. This breaks the heart of God. These people need Christ in their life. And no, it doesn't mean they'd have a picture-perfect marriage, but it does mean they'd have the hope of bringing the love of Christ to bear on that marriage, that they'd speak the truth in love to each other. They'd handle conflict differently. They wouldn't be at each other's throats. they try to get on the solution side of whatever these issues are and bring the love of Christ to bear on how they raise that kid in the back seat. When you have Christ in the center of your life, it changes how you relate to people in your family and in your friendship circles. Having Christ in the center of your life even changes how you approach uh, simple things like recreation. You know, for many years as a Christian, particularly when I started in the ministry, I felt guilty when we went on vacation. I'm out here enjoying the sun and the water and, and the beach or something like that, and all these people are starving to death. And there's evil and oppression and racism and terrorism all over the place. And I remember one time, it was like God spoke to me. He didn't, but it was like, hey, bud, because that's how God speaks to his friends. And the weight of the world is not designed to be on your shoulders. I'll take responsibility for the world. You do what I asked you to do. And part of what I'm asking you to do is find things you love and you can do and enjoy. So now a sunny day at the beach is one of my most favorite things in all the world. And you can even bring having Christ the center of your life into church. As I said, a lot of people go to church, sit for an hour or so a week, suck up ideas, information, ministry, and go home. That's not what's supposed to happen when you have Christ at the center of your life. You come into church and you bring a full heart and bring a worshiping heart and bring a serving spirit and get behind what's going on at church and you try to help do ministry and serve others in that church so the church can do a better job of helping other people find out how they can get Christ at the center of their life. 
And here's the bottom line concern. I live with a lot of concern. There are tens of thousands of people in our community right now, right here, whose lives look much like what I've described this morning. Fine people, educated, busy folks who have good jobs, trying hard with family and friends. They do a little recreation and they may even go to church. But if you put them up against the wall and said, define your center, what is your core ideology, what is in your heart and your soul, they couldn't answer the question. They couldn't even give you a bad answer. They couldn't answer it at all. Well, friends, here's that plan from that very first Easter Sunday on. Jesus Christ came back from the dead, not just to rule and reign over the world, but to rule and reign in people's hearts, in your heart and in my heart. You say, how do you get this to happen? I mean, do you have to go to school? Do you have to make a bunch of promises you know you can't keep? Not at all. The scripture says, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It says that Jesus Christ is standing at the door of your heart knocking. He knows there's nothing in the center of your life and senses the emptiness. And he's standing at the door of your life and he's knocking. And the Bible says in Romans 10, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this can be true of your life if you would humbly admit that you don't have a defined center, that you haven't figured out yet what ought to be going on in your life, if you have the humility to admit your need for Christ to be at the center of your life and the faith to ask him to come in and change your life, then this can be true of you no matter who you are or what you've done or how far away you've drifted from God or how uneducated or educated or rich, poor, black, white, it doesn't matter. It's available to you. That's the so what of Easter, Christ alive, ruling and reigning and leading and guiding at the center of your life. What an amazing thing that would be if that could be true of everyone here this morning. I have one more thing to say about the resurrected Christ. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, which was our responsive reading this morning, that when Jesus came back to life, he conquered death. And then the scripture says that when he lives at the center of our lives, he's going to give us the power to conquer death someday too. You know, the death rate still hovers right around 100%. And we don't like to admit that. We don't want to face that. But it's true. We're all going to die. We all have a date. And if Christ is at the center of our life, then as he conquered death, he'll enable us to conquer death. And we'll transition from this life into eternal life with God the Father. He promises to make that happen. It's a wonderful certainty to hold on to. And many of us value that knowledge, that certainty, but there's a subset of people who really, really value it because there's many of us in this place who are living with some sort of crushing load, something or other that even if Christ is in our life, it makes every day really hard. And it might be that you're in a profession you never liked. You can never get it working quite right or you're in tremendous financial hardship most of the time. It could be a family or friend relationship in your life that's never really worked out. It just doesn't go the way you would like it to go. Maybe there was some evil that was done to you, some 
damage that came your way that caused some brokenness that looks like it'll never get healed this side of heaven. There are some of us for whom life is going to be hard, even with Christ in it, all the way to the end. But the promise in Scripture is that there is coming a day when Christ helps us conquer sin and death. And the scripture says every tear will be wiped from our eye. And whatever has been broken throughout the course of this life is going to be mended. And whatever wound never got healed in this life will be healed then. And some of us look forward to that day with tremendous anticipation. It's time for our closing prayer. But before we pray, please look up here one last time and just try to get this question burned into your mind. If Christ is not at the center of your life today, can you answer the simple question, what is? And whatever it is, will it give you that sense of love on the inside, that sense of belonging? Will it give you the power to overcome the challenges of this life? Does it promise to forgive sin and remove guilt? Does it give you hope for eternity? Does it do those things because it better? The scripture says Christ will do those things in your life. This is the only way. This is plan A. Christ at the center of your life and nothing else will do. And I hope and pray that you'll hear the knocking of Christ on the door of your heart and that you'll humbly, depending even on a very weak faith, to open that door and welcome Christ in. Think about that. Pray about that. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess our unbelief and our lack of repentance. We confess that we often forget the results of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We forget the cross and we forget the empty tomb. We ask for forgiveness. We ask for grace. We ask to be reminded again and again of the power of the gospel to change what's at the very center of our lives. We thank you, Jesus, that you, the beloved Son, our Savior, came and died for our sin according to the scriptures, and you were dead and buried and rose again and appeared to many. And we thank you, Father, that by his resurrection from the dead, we know that Jesus lives and that we stand in perfect relationship with you because of what Christ has done. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have opened our eyes so that we can see these truths, that it's not by being good, but it's by Christ's perfection that we can be right with you. And so we pray for grace to know, understand, and embrace the truth as it is in Jesus that we as a church might be to the praise of your glory. In the matchless name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Hear God's blessing. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Happy Easter.